Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Father, we just sang about your holiness. You are holy, 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 set apart, pure, righteous, perfect. God, you are from above, we are from below. God, we recognize in our lives that there are so many things that we have done and things that have been done to us, God, that make us unclean, defiled, how can we enter the presence of a holy God? Lord, we're here in your presence because you have made a way, because we have been saved by your grace. Because of Jesus, we can approach your throne. You have made us clean. And so God, I pray that you would teach us from your word today how that might be possible to become clean. Lord, we give you this time and we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would speak to us and that we would hear the voice of your spirit speaking to our hearts and making us clean. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1847, there was a Hungarian physician named Ignaz Semmelweis. And he discovered that if doctors only washed their hands 
prior to treating patients that they could prevent the spread of infection. His discovery was actually not honored immediately. It took a long time for people to actually get behind what he had discovered, but eventually they led to the formulation of germ theory and have saved countless lives. And so today, we know that hygiene and health are connected. And so there are certain things that we just don't mess with unless it has been properly cleaned. Imagine sitting down for dinner at a friend's house or going to a restaurant and then grabbing dirty dishes out of the sink and setting the table and serving you on dirty dishes. Even in this pandemic, it's made us think differently about illness. My parents would send me to school with a cold as long as I you know, didn't have a fever, as long as I could function, hopped up on DayQuil and ibuprofen, we were good to go. And that was just the way things were. But now, anytime someone sneezes or, or coughs, people start getting nervous. Are they, are they unclean? Are they infected? Are they defiled? Am I now unclean? So whether dirty dishes, dirty hands, or dirty minds, to be unclean is to be unusable. A few weeks ago, our dishwasher broke, which meant we had no clean dishes because we had to wash them by hand. I hate washing dishes by hand. But eventually, they would fill the sink and we would have to start doing the dishes because to be dirty is to be unusable. It's to be unsafe. It's to be a danger to those who come in contact with it. And so they need to be cleansed before they can be acceptable. Now, there's a lot happening in this text And there's much to say about it. But at the heart of this text is a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees over what it takes for a person to become clean and therefore acceptable, not just to society, but acceptable to God. And so the question that we need to be asking throughout our time together is what does it take to be clean? What does it take for me and for you to be made acceptable to God? See, we have a need for purity. Jesus' disciples, they didn't wash up before their meal, apparently. And so the religious elite are upset about it. Because if if their hands are defiled, then the person was defiled And if the person was defiled, they could spread defilement throughout Israel. And if Israel was defiled, then Messiah would not come. This is what they believed. Now, this practice of washing was not due to an understanding of pathogens or germ theory or anything like that. It was rooted in the Old Testament's instructions concerning ritual purity. And it's a big deal. Ritual purity is a big deal in the Old Testament, and it was a big deal in the daily life of a first century Jewish person. We need to wrap our minds around what this ritual purity was and what it was not. Ritual purity is the required state of any person who wished to be in the presence of God. For someone to be in the presence of God, they needed to go through these particular rituals to be made clean so that they could worship in the temple. God wants to be with his people, but he is holy and he must be approached with reverence and respect. So for our safety and for our protection, he established these rules and regulations that must be followed in order to enter his presence in the temple. 
Now, ritual purity is not the same thing as sinlessness, right? Ritual purity laws served as a reminder to the people that they too were called to be holy and that their sin brought separation from God. So someone didn't need to be perfect. They didn't need to be sinless in order to worship God in the temple. Rather, they need to recognize that they can never be perfect and yet rejoice that God has given them a way to not be cut off from him, but to be invited into his presence. That God had provided a way to give them access to his holy presence through these prescribed practices. And so this means that the ritual purity laws were in themselves a gift of God's grace. The law is grace. See, God didn't give the Israelites the law when they were slaves in Egypt. And then once they started following the law, he redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt. No, he redeems them, he saves them, and then he gives them the law. God has always been working in his people by grace. The the Christian life begins and ends and is empowered by grace. And so these ritual purity laws themselves were a gift of God's grace. They They were given to the people to give them access to God. They were given to them not because God expected them to be perfect. And if they weren't, then like, fine, do this thing. Plan B. He called them to be holy knowing they could never. But yet gave them these rituals, gave them these these purity laws so that they could become clean and acceptable and enter his presence. But in the Old Testament, the people abused the grace of of the law. They abused the grace of these purity laws, though they continued to follow the practices of purity and the practices of sacrifice. Their hearts weren't in it. They were going through the motions. They were going to the temple, doing the prescribed things, becoming clean so that they could live however they wanted the rest of the week. And so we need to ask ourselves, church, Do we treat Sundays like this? Do we treat church like our weekly bath? Just coming here, getting cleansed from a week of defilement so I can go back into my world and have all the fun that I want because Sunday's coming and I'll just, you know, I'll just be be cleansed again. Or is the Sunday gathering a celebration of the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ that has already made us clean? See, Jesus makes us clean. We're going to talk about this in a moment. Sunday, church, worship does not make you clean. You can't live however you want during the week. Come in here and be like, I'm good, and then go back into your normal habits. In Isaiah's day, this is what the people were doing. They were abusing God's grace and living in sin. And so the result is Isaiah's rebuke that Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 29, 13. He says, this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. See, they were playing church. They were playing church, but their practices did not reflect what was actually going on in their hearts. Their motives for obeying the rules were self-serving and not God-honoring. And so God sends them into exile. Their their, their hearts were defiled. And so the temple was defiled. And their sacrifices were defiled. And the land was defiled. And God says, 
you've got to leave. You got to go. You cannot be allowed to continue defiling my space, defiling my presence. And so he sends them into captivity in Babylon, but he brings them back. And so when Israel returns from exile, there was this new vigor. There was this entirely new recognition of the need for purity. They were removed from the land because of their sin. And so there was this resurgence in their desire to follow the law, to keep God's law to the letter. And so they developed something that in our text is called the traditions of the elders, is what Jesus refers to them as. And these traditions were additional rules and regulations that were not in God's law, but were created by the people uh, uh, so that they would keep themselves at a safe distance from ever breaking one of God's commandments. They referred to it as a fence around the law. If they could create these boundaries that they wouldn't cross, then they would never get close to actually breaking one of God's laws. They were so zealous to keep the law to the letter that they developed their own guidelines, but then began enforcing their guidelines as though they were God's law. Now, developing these boundaries, developing the fence around the law, there can be wisdom to that. There can be a lot of wisdom in that. Think about our own boundaries that we set up to protect our marriages or the boundaries that we set up to protect our sobriety or the boundaries we set up to protect our children's eyes when they are on the internet. These boundaries can be a good thing. But in our text, it's evidence that what they developed as safeguards eventually began to be enforced as though it were God's law. See, nowhere in the Old Testament does God tell the people that they need to wash their hands before they eat. There is a prescription in the law for priests that the priests must wash their hands before performing a sacrifice, but there is nothing in the Old Testament law about them washing their hands before they eat. And so apparently, what most people believe happened is that some scribe, some Pharisee, some person who desired to be obedient to the law said, God has called us to be a kingdom of priests. And so if priests need to wash their hands before they make sacrifices, then let's have the people wash their hands before they eat. It's another reminder of our need to be cleansed. It's another reminder of God's holiness. It's another reminder of, of that, that we, need to, we need to undergo a purifying before we even receive from God. There can be wisdom to this. It could have been developed by a, 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 a right heart. We don't want to throw the Pharisees under the bus too early. But they eventually began to, to enforce this guideline as though it were God's law. So rigorous was their obedience to this ritual of washing before eating that it is even reported that a Pharisee who was imprisoned by Rome died of thirst because he used his daily ration of water for washing instead of drinking. He refused to eat without washing and so he didn't drink. And their concern, the Pharisees' concern, was not only about ritual washing and ritual purity, but with Sabbath regulations and practically every other aspect of daily life. There was all these rules that they enforced as though God himself was enforcing them. Now, I can see the logic, 
I hope we can see the logic in this and see how it may have begun as devotion, but then they began to be enforced with as much authority as God's law, even at times contradicting God's own law. And so Jesus cites the specific example here of Corban. Now, Corban was a vow that someone could take that declared either a piece or all of their property was declared now a gift to God. And that means that whatever was vowed would only be available to God's use and now unavailable for human use. So I declare all of my property Corbin. It's a gift to God. As long as I'm alive, I get to use it however I want for my benefit, but it is not allowed to be used for the benefit of another person because it is, belongs to God. And the Pharisees were extremely zealous about keeping people to their word. If they made a vow, even selfishly or, or foolishly or hastily, the Pharisees would be certain that they would force them to keep their vow to prove a point. That you just don't make vows foolishly. You don't make vows quickly. They would enforce the keeping of the vow. And so sometimes this Corban vow would even prevent someone from taking care of their own parents in their old age. If their property was unavailable for human use, then they couldn't use it to care for their parents in the old age, therefore violating the fifth commandment of honoring your father and your mother. And so some Pharisees enforced the vow over the commandment of God. And this is what Jesus is pointing at. He says, this isn't the only time you do this. Many such things like this you do, Jesus says. And so there's this good thing. Be a man of your word. Be a woman of your word. If you make a promise, keep that promise. Promises are important. But Jesus says, if you make a promise that contradicts God's law, that's just sin. Don't do that and keep the law. Don't hold to the standard that you create for yourself more than the law of God. And they would do this all while patting themselves on the back for being an honest person, for making in Israel an honest people to the neglect of the heart of the law. And so this is why Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13 and says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And so Jesus is saying that when Isaiah spoke of those in their own context, that it also applies to those who are confronting him in this scene. They're going through the motions again. They're playing church again. They're doing all the right things, but their hearts and their motives aren't right. And so this is the danger of self-righteous religion. This is the danger of self-righteous religion. Self-righteous religion is the performance of religious rituals in order to make one's self righteous. It's justification by what you do and by what you do not do. It's a rejection of God's grace and an attempt to become your own savior. Because if you can check all the righteous boxes, then you are righteous and you don't have to worry about piddly little things like God's grace. You're good enough. And it's trying to attain righteousness for yourself. 
And it's not unique to the Pharisees. Look, again, I'm going to throw the Pharisees under the bus. Trust me. But we need to recognize that they're no different than us. There is an appeal to religion. We are, are tempted often to turn what Jesus has done into a system of religious practices because there is an appeal to religion. Religion is appealing because it offers us the ability to stand on our own two feet. See, we prize being independent, being autonomous, being self-sufficient. We love being able to make our own way. We don't like depending on anyone, not even God. And so religion is appealing because it offers us the ability to stand on our own two feet. Do we have slides for this? Religion is also appealing because it promises a reward for good behavior. See, it's good for people to be acknowledged for a job well done. And checking the religious boxes allows us to go, I've done a good job, I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, and pat yourself on the back and reward yourself for being so obedient. Religion is appealing because it lets us believe that we are good enough. So we long to know that we're approved and accepted by God and others, and religion provides us with a system of knowing how we're doing. Don't do this, do this, don't do that. Don't talk to that person, talk to this person, do all of these different things. And we, we check the boxes. There's an appeal to religion. It's appealing because it simplifies the complexities of faith by giving us all of these boxes to check. There's no need to depend on the Holy Spirit. He just complicates things. This is my list of things that I have to do and not do today. And we lie in bed and we check the boxes and we go, I'm good. Religion is appealing because it gives us a sense of control. You are in control of your eternal fate if all you have to do is the right things and avoid the wrong things. Religion is appealing because it offers us an identity that is built on tradition. Now, tradition is valuable. Tradition is valuable. It it guides and guards our worship. Tradition is important. But it becomes a problem when we actually start worshiping our traditions. It becomes traditionalism. It becomes, I do these things because this is the way I do these things because it's always been the way that people do these things. And if I do these things this way, then I'm associated with those people who have done things this way and they were good, so I am good. See how it works? Tradition is good. It guides and guards our worship, but... We have to be careful that we're not worshiping our tradition. There's an appeal to religion, but this kind of religion neglects the heart of God in favor of right behavior. See, if Jesus had been a promoter of this kind of religion, if Jesus had been a promoter of self-righteous religion, then the leper would not have been cleansed. And the woman with the flow of blood would not have been healed and she would not have been praised for her faith in reaching out and touching his garment. And the man with the withered hand in the synagogue would still have a withered hand. Because all of those things, all of those healings, all of those miracles required that Jesus break with the tradition of the elders to reach out and touch someone that was unclean. And instead of contracting their uncleanness, they contracted his holiness and were healed. See, if Jesus were a promoter of this kind of religion, then you and I, who are, some of us might be of Jewish descent, but those of us who are not of Jewish descent would be cut off from salvation. See, we're Gentiles. 
non-Jewish people. Gentiles were ritually unclean and there was nothing they could do about it other than to become Jews, to go through rituals, to go through practice, to become holy, to become clean. And this is why the Pharisees washed when they were in the marketplace. They'd go to the marketplace, they'd come home and they would actually they would take a, a, a full bath before eating because they might have come in contact with a dirty little Gentile like you and me. And so they would wash before they would eat. See, there's, there's an appeal to religion. But at the end, religion fails because it doesn't honor God. The purpose of the law was to show the people their need for God. It reveals the character of God. And as we look into it, it functions like a mirror. It reveals our own hearts to us. As we see the standard that God sets, we look at it and we go, I don't measure up. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, when he is in the presence of the Lord, he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When we look at the character of God in the law, we recognize just how far short we fall. But they turned the law into a show of righteousness and then added to its requirements. They put self-righteousness on display through their outward acts, but all the while their hearts grew cold and hard. They were playing church. It was an act. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now today, a hypocrite is someone who preaches one thing and then practices something different. But the word in Jesus' context just meant an actor. It was, a, it was a play actor. They were, they were a phony. They were someone who was putting, uh, playing a part, playing a role in a, in a, in a theater. And so Jesus says that, that, that all of these things that they're doing, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, you phonies, you, you play actors, you're, 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 you're putting up this facade. You're like the, the sets of an old Western movie where it looks realistic and then you open the door and there's nothing on the other side. It's just a face. It's just a show. Inside it's empty. It's hollow. It's just dusty roads. It looks nice. But there's nothing there. A hypocrite is a phony putting on a display to convince others and even convince ourselves that we're beautiful, that we are happy, that we're righteous, that we are acceptable to God, but on the other side of the face is, is uncleanness. In Matthew, Jesus would say you're like whitewashed tombs. Looks great on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. See, religion, the self-righteous religion produces hypocrites and phonies, legalists who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. And in short, religion fails because it rejects God. You see, there's two ways to reject God. We can look out at the world and see people who never go to church, never been to a church, call themselves atheists, don't follow God, reject God, and live however they want in, in debaucherous lifestyles. And we can say they've rejected God. But there's another way to reject God. We reject him by earning our own status, earning our own righteousness. Both of these ways to reject God are seen in the parable of the prodigal son. The father has two sons. The youngest one takes his father's stuff, abandons the family, and squanders it in sinful living, while the other brother, the elder brother, stays there and faithfully serves his father and does all the right things. 
And then when the younger son comes to his senses and repents and comes back to the father and the father welcomes him back into the house, the elder brother is furious about it. He says, all these years I've served you faithfully and you never even gave me so much as a young goat. But when this son of yours who squanders your wealth on all sorts of debaucherous living comes home, you slaughter the fattened calf. And so his heart is revealed. All the elder brother wanted was the exact same thing that the younger brother wanted. He just went about a different way to get it. He wanted his dad's stuff. He didn't want his dad. And so the parable ends with the elder brother outside the banquet. The younger brother being welcomed back into the family. But the elder brother is outside, bitter and angry, all because his father didn't give him what he wanted. And so we can reject God by abandoning him and living however we want. And we can reject God by doing everything he's ever asked us to do, all the while never actually wanting him. And we can turn church into a means of prying blessings from God's hands, all the while never actually knowing and receiving the grace that we need to be in his holy presence. See, this is the fate of every person who sees obedience as the way to God's heart. We will stand outside the banquet where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But to those who repent, to those who turn from sin, turn from the debaucherous lifestyle as the younger brother did, or turn from self-righteousness as is the call to the elder brother, to turn from our sin, to turn from our self-righteousness, to turn from our rejecting God's grace. If we repent, then God will give the invitation into his kingdom to sit at his banquet table. Religious observance cannot accomplish this. Look, obeying God is good. It is good to obey God, but we need to recognize that we obey God because God has already accepted us. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, but grace says, you are accepted, therefore obey. Therefore, live in light of who God is and what he has done for you. Religious observance was never intended to accomplish this. We have always needed grace. And ultimately, this this kind of religion fails because what God requires is not clean hands. What God requires is clean hearts. And religion is unable to cleanse our hearts. Religion can never make us acceptable to God. We need a cleansing of our hearts that is outside of ourselves. Jesus says nothing going into the body can make it unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. It's what has been produced from within and spills out of us that makes us unclean. The picture that Jesus gives us here is like, is like a, 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 we might be a beautiful fountain, but it's just sewage coming out of it. It's this, this fountain of refuse. The heart is this spring of vile thoughts and sinful actions. It's the, the filth that flows out of us that makes us unclean. And this is what needs to be dealt with. Not our hands, but our hearts. And today, today we talk about following your heart. Be true to your heart. 
Today, our, our heart is this, is this uh, the seat of our emotions, right? We talk about it, it's the center of our emotional life. But in Jesus' day, the heart was not uh, separated from the intellectual life as well. In fact, the heart was understood to be the center of the whole being, the, the control center of the whole person. It's where our motivations lie. It's where uh, uh, our, our deepest loves and, and loyalties uh, reside, is, is in the heart. And so for the heart to uh, be unclean means that even the good things that we do, because they're tainted with sinful loves and desires and lusts and sinful motiv- motivations, that even the good things we do are, are, are tainted with sin. The good things that we do are still unclean. And so the reason our hearts need cleansing is because out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, slander, and foolishness. Now I would love to break each of these words down. Each of them is a sermon of their own, but that would miss the point. It would miss the point to sit there and break down every single one of those words and say, church, don't do this. Church, don't do that. Sexual immorality, nope. Theft, nope. Murder, slander, all these things, nope. Check, 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 check. And see what we'd be doing? We'd be making ourselves righteous again. The point is not to break down these words and make sure that we're ridding all of that from our lives. And then make sure we're adding the fruits of the Spirit to our lives. The point is to recognize not that there's something wrong with my actions, but there's something wrong with my heart. Why do I produce these things? Why do these things come out of me? I can't control it. My heart is sick. These are the things that defile someone. Dirt and germs can make you sick, so you wash your dishes and you wash your hands before you eat, but our hearts are already sick with sin and in need of healing, and no amount of religion or tradition can save us. It's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. It's not going to help. Only God's grace can save us. The law of God is good, obedience is good the law of God is good it shows us the character of God and it reveals our sin but it's absolutely powerless to save us from it no matter how much the Pharisees added to it see the law is like railroad tracks they keep the train heading in the right direction but the tracks have no power to actually move the train down the path it needs an engine it needs a power source and so the law is like these railroad tracks, but, but grace is what actually moves us down the track. Grace is the engine that moves us into the presence of God. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, we started by asking the question, how do I become clean? How can I be made acceptable to God? We need Jesus to cleanse our hearts. See, Jesus was condemned for our sin, the sin that separates us from God. Jesus received in himself. It says, though he knew no sin, he became, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled the law 
perfectly on our behalf, and yet he went to the death that we deserve so that we could have the life, so that we could have the righteousness, so that we could have the holiness, so that we can have the cleanliness that he accomplished. See, the, the, the sin that we accomplish sent him to the cross so that the life that he accomplished could be imparted to us. And so if we believe, if we believe that he was condemned in our place, if we believe that he fulfilled the law on our behalf, then his righteousness is given to us and we can stand before God cleansed. You can't earn it. You cannot work for it. You cannot achieve what is necessary to be in the presence of God. But Jesus did it. He accomplished it. He finished it. And we only need to receive it. It's all we can do is open our hands, say, God, I have nothing to give, and let him fill our hands with what we need to live. We need to be cleansed. And religion is an appealing way. Religion is often the default of the human heart to pursue uh, uh, this, this, this righteousness, this goodness by religion is appealing because grace is hard to receive. I could put a list of things that we need to do and list of things that we need to not do. And it, for many of us, would be easier to actually accomplish that than to open our hands and receive grace. Because we like earning approval. Are you kidding me? We love earning approval based on performance. And it's hard to receive grace because Jesus doesn't require anything of us in order to be saved by him. But those he saves, he calls to obedience. And then my religious mind goes, oh, okay, 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 okay. So you saved me, right? And you call me to obedience. But if I obey you, then you'll love me more, right? And he says, no. Nope. Okay, but if I, but if I don't obey you, you'll love me less. Nope. Not at all. Then why obey you? Because I saved you. When you were dead in your sins. When you were condemned, I saved you. I stepped in your place. I took it from you. So that you, and I gave you my Holy Spirit so that you would actually be empowered to follow me, to live like me, so that acts of righteousness are produced from love. Because recognizing that, that religion says that my sin breaks God's law, Jesus says by grace we recognize that sin breaks God's heart. Why do we obey? Because he saved me. Because he saved you. Because I love him for what he's done for me. And I don't want to break his heart. It's not that I'm afraid of the lightning bolt from heaven to come down and strike me when I do something bad. It's because I'm afraid of my own heart breaking when I recognize what my sin has done to my Savior. The reason we obey is not so that God will love us more. The reason we obey is because he has already loved us more than we can possibly fathom. He has paid it all. He is worthy of it all. He has given his life for us. It is a small thing for me to give my life away. For you to give your life away to the one who has given you a significantly greater life a significantly greater obedience, a significantly greater righteousness and holiness. We obey 
because we have been accepted. We obey because we have been cleansed. We live a righteous life because we have been made righteous, not by anything you can do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Praise God. And this means that this is applicable to every single one of us in this room. Some of you have trusted in the gospel. You believe that your sins are forgiven. We've trusted in Jesus. We know these things to be true. We're encouraged by them. We, we, we claim grace by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We claim grace on Sundays. And then Monday we go back to living however we want. To come back in on Sunday again. That's not grace. See, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the power that eliminates sin from our lives. Some of us will live like Pharisees. Yes, I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for me in those areas that I cannot help myself, but we're trying to contribute to our salvation. We're trying to contribute a a great deal to our righteousness, to our standing in the church through religious observance, and we also need to repent. Look, this is is my heart right here, just on the table. Yes, grace. Thanks, God. I got it from here. Now let me... Go do what I can do. And then just have to come back to the cross time and time again. And remember, I can't do it. I can't do it. The Christian life from beginning to end is grace. Some of us in this room, maybe you're here and you have rejected God altogether. And you're living by your own law. You're living for your own pleasures. And what I'm calling you to today What what Jesus is calling you to today is not clean up your act, sinner, and then maybe. It's not what he's calling you to. He's calling you to simply trust. To simply believe in him. To trust that his righteousness has been given to you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Trust that your sin has been washed away. That you've been cleansed by what he has done. See, of all the, the, the ritual purity in the Old Testament, all of it was kind of pointed toward this day, one day of the year, the, the day of atonement. And atonement is a, is a funny word, but if we break it down, we can understand it's at-one-ment. See, our sin separates us from God. But when our sin is atoned for, we are made at one with God. Imagine going to a restaurant together and I've forgotten my wallet. It's going to put me in a broken relationship with the restaurant because you are awesome, because you are a loving person. You would say, hey, don't worry, I got you covered. And you would pick up my tab and restore my relationship with the restaurant. In the same way, the day of atonement was this day when Israel remembered my sin has separated me from God, but he has given us a way for my sin to be covered so that I could be restored to a right relationship with him. See, the reason that these, these, this, this, histori- this history of purity laws and all of this stuff is important is because Jesus came and fulfilled it all. That Jesus was the great high priest who lived the sinless life, whose hands were clean so that his sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice was pure, atoning for the sins of the world. We just trust that he has cleansed us. 
You're called to trust that you've been given a new heart with new desires and new loves and new motivation to trust that your sin, regardless of your experience, regardless of your separation that you feel from God, that today Jesus is offering you life and all you have to do is receive. If you receive him today, your heart will be cleansed. You'll be given access to the very presence of God by his Holy Spirit. Remember, that's what purity is all about. It's all about access to God. But now our access to God's been granted to us by grace. Our purity has been given to us as a gift from Jesus. And these religious requirements are no longer, uh, they're no longer relevant. They're redundant. We've been cleansed. We don't need to continue cleansing ourselves. We already have more access than the law could ever give. This gift of God's grace is what motivates righteous behavior. Don't get me wrong, church. We are called to a very high standard of righteousness and holiness. Do not hear me and say, Jesus has cleansed you so you don't have to be clean. No, we need to go from this place and become who he has made us by grace. We practice becoming what his power has already made us. He has called you holy. He has declared you righteous. Don't make him a liar. Go out and live a righteous, holy life by the power of the Spirit. Let's follow him in all of life because he has done it for us. Let's pray. Father, what do we say? But thank you. Jesus, what do we have to offer but empty hands? God, receiving is so hard. Receiving compassion, receiving generosity, receiving love, so difficult for us because we don't trust. We don't trust that someone's generosity uh, uh, doesn't come with strings attached. We don't, we don't trust that, that somebody's love of us or our love of them isn't going to lead to betrayal. God, some of us in this room are struggling to receive this good news. We know it intellectually. We believe it in our minds, but it's so difficult to break the chains off our hearts and actually open our hands to receive it. If you're here and you're struggling with this, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, and you, and you want to receive what God has for you today. You want to receive cleansing. You want to receive the righteousness that he has for you. You want to receive the Holy Spirit that, that washes us clean. Ezekiel says, I've sprinkled you with clean water so that you may be clean. I've removed from you the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. fills us with his spirit. If you want to receive today, will you just, just in the, the privacy of the dark room, will you just open your hands as a posture of, we bring nothing to him, but he offers us everything. Just in the quietness of your heart, would you pray with me?
Father, I have tried to achieve my own righteousness because I thought it would bring you glory, but in total, just glorifying myself. Father, we, we try to, to bring um, our, our best and we fall short. And sometimes, Lord, that shame that we feel when we, when we fall short, we, we, we hide from you as Adam and Eve did in the garden. They loved walking with you in the garden and then they sinned and then they hid from you and they hid from one another. God, I do that. I don't want to hide. Lord, we're sitting here with open hands offering nothing but our lives. I believe that you fulfilled the law on my behalf, making me clean. I believe you died the death that my sins deserve, forgiving me, washing me, declaring me righteous. I believe that you rose from the dead three days later, promising that we too would be raised to new life. And I believe that you have offered me your Holy Spirit to empower righteousness, to unite me to you. God, there is nothing I can do. You have done it all. I simply receive. Father, I ask for anyone who said this prayer, who believes these things, now in the name of Jesus, you'd fill them with your spirit. Fill them with your spirit. Make them a new creation. Lead them in a life of loving service of you, not to earn salvation, but because you have saved them by your grace. We love you, Lord. We worship you not just now with our voices, but with our lives. Be glorified in all we say and do. We ask it in Jesus' name.